Amen. Thank you, Penny. Thank you very much. Well, as we've been doing, we're going to continue to work our way uh, verse by verse through the book of Exodus, and we're continuing on in Exodus 25. And one thing to keep in mind is that, that God showed remarkable favor to his people Israel. He heard their cries for mercy. He rescued them from slavery. He defeated their enemies. He led them through the wilderness and provided for their daily needs. He taught them how to live by giving them his law. Then he came down to live with them and be their God. And, and this was the primary meaning of the tabernacle. The living God had come to dwell with his people. Uh, another way to say this is to say all of this is that God was fulfilling his covenant with Israel. The covenant was God's unbreakable promise to love and save his people. And at the heart of that covenant was his commitment to be with his people. He said, I will turn to you, make you fruitful and multiply you, confirm my covenant with you. I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you will no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. Now, the construction of the tabernacle was, was a fulfillment of God's covenant. You see, God was making good on his promise to be with his people, literally by pitching his tent in the middle of their camp. And this was all in preparation for the time when God would send his son to be our savior. I mean, the tabernacle of the Exodus was an amazing step in the plan of salvation as God came down to live with his people and be their God. The ultimate tabernacle is Jesus Christ. For the word became flesh and took up residence among us, as John 1.14 says. This is the gospel according to the tabernacle. Now, as we study the tabernacle, we need to pay attention to the details, but it's also important not to lose sight of the big picture. And the big picture here is God coming down to live with his people. And as we pay, pay attention to the details, we don't want to miss their spiritual significance. I mean, think of how much detail the Bible goes into in describing in describing the tabernacle. It carefully describes every part of the building because it has something to teach us about God and his salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, there's really some debate about this. There are some uh, scholars out there who say the details are not important at all. They think that Moses simply borrowed his building plans from the Egyptians or from some other local religion of that ancient culture. And they claim that the tabernacle furnishings are simply functional. For example, someone said that the altar of incense 
was simply designed to keep the flies away, like a giant citronella candle or something. But we need to remember that the tabernacle was planned from top to bottom by Almighty God. It was the house that Moses built, but the designer and architect was God. And the symbolism it held was his symbolism. Therefore, the details are important because God did reveal himself through the tabernacle. Now, the, the Bible doesn't explain all the details, and so it isn't always easy to know how to understand them. I mean, there's a, there's a long history of interpreting, misinterpreting, and then reinterpreting the tabernacle. Often two people would look at the very same symbol and interpret it different ways. Uh, one person, and this was Gregory the Great, he looked at the Ark of the Covenant, and he says, wow, what's symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant but the Holy Church? The Ark was supposed to be built with four rings of gold around the corner. Well, obviously, uh, being extended to the four parts of the world, those four rings represent the four books of the Gospels. Someone else said that the Ark is a symbol of the Incarnation how the ark was made with acacia wood overlaid with gold. And the wood speaks of Jesus's incorruptible humanity and the gold of his divinity. You've got two materials, yet one ark, two natures, yet one person, the God-man. And when you hear this, at first you're going to go, well, those interpretations seem really plausible. But the problem is that many of these interpretations are completely arbitrary. Rather than drawing a meaning out of the tabernacle, some interpreters read into it. I mean, for example, how do we know that the four golden rings stand for the four gospels? What connection do we see other than the number four? Well, there really isn't a connection. So it's not an accurate interpretation to equate the golden rings on the ark to the four gospels. And if there really are plain meanings of these symbols, why do different commentators interpret them different ways? Well, we do need to understand that the tabernacle is a revelation of God's glory. But on the one hand, people go overboard when they try to find Jesus in every detail. But Jesus is in many of the details. The symbolism referring to him is there because God put it there. But rather than coming up with their own fanciful interpretations, we need reliable principles for interpreting the tabernacle. And one of these principles to use when interpreting not just the tabernacle, but when interpreting anything uh, of the Old Testament, is the New Test use the New Testament as the key to unlock the Old Testament. There's a number of New Testament passages, for example, that explain what the tabernacle meant. The book of Hebrews calls the tabernacle a sanctuary that serves as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. It actually calls the tabernacle a symbol of the greater and more perfect tabernacle. 
And to make sure we understand what it's supposed to illustrate, I mean, Hebrews goes on and explains how the tabernacle is connected to Christ, and especially the access to God that we now have through his sacrificial blood. So we use the New Testament as the key to unlock the Old Testament. And another reliable principle of interpretation is to study the way a detail is used in its original context. If something has a symbolic function in the Old Testament, then in all likelihood, it's going to be connected to the Bible's main story of salvation, and it is intended to point us to Christ. Now, if something does not have a spiritual meaning in the Old Testament context, we should be careful not to give it one and try to make some arbitrary connection to Christ. And maybe a few examples might help explain what I mean here. Uh, there were wooden crossbars that were used to hold up the tabernacle. Now, and these were in the shape of a cross. But we should ask, are these intended to teach us something about the cross of Christ? Well, the answer is going to be no, because they don't have any significance, uh, any symbolic significance in the Old Testament. They're not connected in any specific way to meeting with God or to make an atonement with sin. All they do is hold up the tabernacle. Or consider the ram skins that were dyed red and used to cover the tabernacle. I mean, really, does the New Testament draw out any connection between them and the offering of a sacrifice? Well, it, it doesn't seem to do that. So if we connect the red cloth to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are in danger of stretching things. Does the Bible attach any special significance to the colors of yarn used in the tabernacle? Even though it tells us the colors of yarn, it doesn't seem to attach any special spiritual significance to them. And so we should be careful when we attach significance to them. What about the acacia wood and the gold? Is this a symbol of the incarnation with the gold representing Christ's deity and the wood his humanity? I mean, this admittedly, this is an appealing interpretation. But the answer is probably no. The New Testament is silent about this uh, feature or the way the ark was constructed. And the Old Testament doesn't give any clue that acacia wood has a symbolic significance or that there's any special meaning in combining wood with gold. And besides that, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't the only piece of furniture made of wood covered in gold. The table for the showbread was built the same way. The carrion poles themselves were made of wood covered with gold. So it's really hard to see how they have a connection to the union of Christ's deity and his humanity. So again, it's important to see how Christ is taught in all scripture, but we shouldn't try to find him in places he doesn't actually appear. Now, when the, when the Old Testament does have symbolic meaning, we need to consider how it's connected to Christ. When we saw this, when we studied the Ark of the Covenant, how the cherubim on the Ark clearly represented the glorious cherubim in heaven. I mean, the Old Testament describes God as 
enthroned between the cherubim. I mean, and we can understand that to mean that the space above the ark symbolically represented his throne. Remember, we talked about the lid called the atonement cover, and that connects it to the whole Old Testament system of sacrifice, especially the sin offerings made on the Day of Atonement. And the ark itself is described as God's footstool, symbolizing his rule and authority. You see, these symbols are present in the Old Testament, and they teach us about the glory of God and our need to have our sins covered by the blood of an atoning sacrifice. And once we understand the true symbolism of the ark, we can see how it relates to Jesus Christ and the way his blood covers our sin and brings us to God's throne. And the symbolism does find confirmation in the New Testament, where the New Testament describes the ark as a symbol for the present time. The present time when Christ has opened up the way to God through the sacrifice of his blood. And just to quickly summarize those two valid principles that we can use in interpretation. One is to use the New Testament as the key to unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. We're to use scripture to interpret scripture, allowing the Bible to explain its own symbolism. And the second principle is to pay careful attention to the Old Testament to see if a particular detail does have some symbolic meaning in its original context. If it does, then we should go on to ask how this meaning relates to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't, we should be careful not to invent a meaning of our own. We should not read anything into the Old Testament that we're not able to read out of it. Now, kind of laying though that, that, that groundwork, now that an understanding of the basic principles of, interpret, of interpreting what went into the tabernacle, I want us to move ahead and look at the next piece of furniture that was going into the tabernacle. You know, first, God had told Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant, and this was the most important object in the tabernacle, the place where God was. Then God moved to the Holy of Holies, and he says to Moses, uh, you are to construct or then God moved out to the holy place, just outside the holy of holies. And he said to Moses, you are to construct a table of acacia wood. I'm now at Exodus 25, starting at verse 23. You're to construct a table of acacia wood. Build it 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make gold molding all around it. Make a three-inch frame all around it and make a gold molding for all around its frame. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at its legs. The rings should be next to the frame as holders for the poles to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table can be carried by them. You are also to make its plates and cups, as well as its pitchers and bowls for pour and drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. Put the bread of the presence on the table before me 
at all times. Now, these are the instructions that God gave to Moses. A little bit later on in Exodus, in chapter 37, this uh, documents the making of the ark. Uh, Bezael, the chief craftsman for the items made in the tabernacle, he did this. It says that he constructed the table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. He overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding all around it. He made a three-inch frame all around it and made a gold molding all around its frame. He cast the four gold rings for it and attached the rings to the four corners at its four legs. The rings were next to the frame as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles for carrying the table from acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He also made the utensils that would be put on the table out of pure gold, its plates, its cups, as well as the bowls and the pitchers for pouring the drink offerings. Now, there are some obvious similarities that we can see between the way that the table was built and the way that the Ark of the Covenant was built. Both were made of acacia wood, both were covered with gold, and both were, had a, were crowned with molding. Both pieces had rings and poles for carrying. The difference was that unlike the ark, the carrying poles for the table were removable. So although the table was holy, it was not as holy as the ark. Now, like most of the tabernacle furnishings, the table for this bread was not that large. This helps us to realize that the tabernacle was really not built on a grand scale. The, the, the building's true magnificence was in the message, not how massive it was. And this is true of the table. I mean, if you think about it, the table was roughly the size of a coffee table. It was only three feet long, maybe a foot and a half wide, and a little less than three feet tall. And then it was encircled by a wide rim. Now, the Bible gives the table several names. In Exodus, it's simply called, referred to as a table or the table. Numbers calls it the table of the presence. Leviticus calls it the pure gold table. Chronicles calls it the ceremonial clean table. And the most elaborate title comes from 1 Kings which describes it as the gold table that the bread of presence was placed on. This title identifies the most important thing about the table, namely what was on it. The table in the holy place held 12 loaves of sacred bread, as well as the plates, dishes, pitchers, and bowls. The pitchers and bowls were for pour and drink offerings. And although it's not stated here, the dishes were for holding incense and the plates for holding the bread. Now, <laughs> we could stop right here and go, well, this is information. It may be not even too interesting to you, but we have to dig deeper. What does this mean? What is the spiritual significance? We have to think deeply about this text and why God instructed Moses to build a table and place bread upon it in the first place. I mean, most of the instructions that God gave for the table were not symbolic, but functional. There is nothing 
especially significant about the acacia wood, about the rim, about the four golden rings, or even the dishes. These details do not have any symbolic significance. So we shouldn't look for any hidden meanings there. But the one thing that is clearly symbolic was the bread, the bread of the presence. The whole reason that there's a table there in the first place was for putting the bread. The bread is the important thing, not the table. Now, nothing here is said about how the bread was to be made. But later on, we read about it in Leviticus. It says to take fine flour and bake it into 12 loaves. Each loaf is to be made with four quarts. Arrange them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. Place pure frankincense near each row so that it may serve as a memorial portion for the bread and a fire offering to the Lord. The bread is to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath day as a perpetual covenant obligation on the part of the Israelites. It belongs to Aaron and his sons who are to eat it in a holy place, for it is the holiest portion for him from the fire offerings to the Lord. This is a permanent rule. So what did the bread represent? Some scholars say that the Israelites borrowed this ritual from other religions in which people would put out food for their gods, like leaving a plate of cookies out on Christmas Eve. You know, in, in Mesopotamia, they would, arrange, they would arrange on the table the foods that had been prepared as a meal for the gods. I mean, they would have boiled or roasted flesh. It would be placed in the dishes or plates, loaves of bread, jugs of wine, milk and honey, fruit. It would look similar to something that was set before a king. And this practice was based on the belief that the gods, like human beings, also needed food and that they actually ate and drank in some regular way the food and drink that was put before them. I mean, even, even in Japan, when, when, when uh, Wendy and I were living in Japan, as a part of the Shinto religion, food offerings are presented to the god uh, or sacred power. Shinsen is what it's called. But <laughs> it goes really without saying that this is not what the Israelites were doing. Not even in the slightest hint was the bread for God's nourishment. To even think this idea would be idolatrous. Feeding bread to God would make him in our image and contradicts everything the Bible teaches about his divine character. The true and living God does not need our help. The Apostle Paul wrote, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath, and all things. God is eternally self-sufficient and self-existent. He never hungers or gets thirsty. And there is nothing we need to do or can even do to keep him going. He does not depend on us to provide for him. 
Really, the truth is quite the opposite. We are utterly dependent on God for everything we need. And this is what the bread signified. Bread is basic food. It's what we need to survive. According to the psalmist, it's what sustains the heart of a man. And and in having the bread there, it represents God's providential care. When Jesus prayed, give us today our daily bread, he was teaching us to ask God to meet our daily needs. And the bread at the tabernacle represented the same thing. It stood for God's provision. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Now, it's worth noting that there were 12 loaves of bread, one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Every tribe had a place at the table. It's also significant that the bread was in God's presence. This is why it was called the bread of presence. Literally, it means before God's face. His eyes are upon it. He is so close to that table, it's as if he were sitting at it and they're offering it before his face. That's how close this fellowship between God and his people were. This is a perpetual reminder of God's providential care. The people brought the bread right into God's holy presence, not for his benefit, as if he might forget what they needed, but for their benefit. This showbread another term used for it, it symbolized God's constant awareness of their daily needs. In case they were ever tempted to doubt his providence, it reminded them that their needs were ever before him. God saw what they needed. Their needs were always on his mind. And God not only saw what they needed, but he also provided it. I mean, the Israelites knew this from their own experience. God had been with them every step of the way to meet all their needs. He watched over them in Egypt, growing them into a mighty nation. He sustained them in the desert, caring for them along the way by sending bread from heaven, water from the rock. And the bread in the tabernacle, it was a continuous reminder of God's constant care. I mean, Moses said this bread is to be set out before the Lord every Sabbath day as a perpetual covenant obligation on the part of the Israelites. And all through the long centuries, God provided what he promised. Week after week, month after month, year after year, and century after century, the bread of the presence was a sign of God's providence. And there's something else about the bread of the presence that it symbolized. God's fellowship with his people. Back in chapter 24, Moses and the elders had fellowship with God around his table. Remember, they saw God and they ate and drank. And later, this privilege was extended to Israel's priests. Leviticus explains to us that every Sabbath, the priest brought the bread into the holy place as an offering for the people. Now, imagine being an Israelite and seeing this ritual, Sabbath, 
after Sabbath, you see the new bread go in, but you don't see the old bread come out. Where did the bread go? Well, it belongs to Aaron and his sons. So all week long, the bread was in God's presence, symbolizing his fellowship with his people. It stood as a perpetual thank offering to God for all the blessings, the blessings of his providence. Then when the priests ate the bread, they were eating in the presence of God, gathering around his table. Now, in, in one sense, you could say that they celebrated Holy Communion with the Lord every week on behalf of the people of God in a real, tangible way. But that, that old covenant was restrictive. Only the ironic priesthood could eat the bread. Oh, but when the seed of the woman came to crush the serpent's head, when the offspring of Abraham, the one who would bless all nations, when he came, when the lion of the tribe of Judah came, when those promises came true in Jesus Christ, the Bible says to us very clearly that all God's people have become priests. First Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. You see, the blessing for us in the new covenant is that all of us as God's people are called to be priests, which means that all of us get to eat the Lord's bread and have intimate communion with him at his table. In the ancient Near East, sharing a special meal together was an act of friendship and personal communion. The host undertook solemn responsibility to serve and protect his guest while they enjoyed the meal. And you see, this God invited Israel to share a meal with him and enjoy his protection. God invites us to share a meal with him and enjoy his protection. God still provides for his people today. The lesson we learn from the bread of the presence is really as practical as it is simple. God knows what we need, and he can be trusted to provide it. I mean, this is one of the great themes of Scripture and one of the great truths of Christian life. Whatever we need, God will provide. And the bread in the tabernacle encourages us to believe that God always knows what we need. Our needs are ever before his face. We've got to grasp hold of that. He never overlooks our concerns. He never neglects to provide for them. If it's meeting a basic material need, granting wisdom for a major decision, sustaining us through a serious illness, comforting us in a painful sorrow, providing friendship in a time of loneliness. God never fails to provide what we truly need. Let me tell you, whatever difficulties we may encounter, we can trust him to sustain us all along the way. God knows what we need, 
and can always be trusted to provide it. And by giving us our daily bread, God teaches us a deeper lesson. He wants us to learn that what we really need is himself. As God meets our daily needs, he's teaching us that he is all we need. I think that eventually most Christians learn to trust God for their daily needs. I mean, as we go through life, we have specific experiences of God's providing care. And God uses our times of need to teach us that we can count on him to provide. I mean, it happens again and again. We need work. God provides a job. We need food. God provides a meal. Even if we're not very good at uh, inductive reasoning, eventually we figure out that God can always be trusted to provide what we truly need. But I think that what some Christians still need to learn is that our real need is for God himself. It's true. Oh, yes, it's true that we need God to provide for us. But our deepest need is to have fellowship with the living God. More than needing God to feed us, we need to feed on God. I mean, eventually Moses did figure this out. Years later, when he looked back on all the things God had done to provide for his people, he said to them, He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why did God provide his people with bread? To teach them to trust him for their daily needs? Yes but it had a deeper purpose. God sent it to teach his people to feed upon his word, placing their total dependence upon his divine grace. So the question is, are you drawing spiritual nourishment from his word? Do you have a growing appetite to spend time alone with God in prayer? Oh, of There are things that God provides, yes, but what he's trying to teach us is our total need for himself. I mean, our relationship with God is need-based, and our needs are not merely physical but spiritual. They're not temporal but eternal. And so what we need is not only for God to do this or that for us, but for him to be our God. And this is something we will need long after our material needs have been met. We still need God the way a beggar needs bread because he's the food for our soul. But let me tell you, this is not an easy lesson to learn. And it's easier for us to ask God to do something for us than it is to crave God himself. 
people had the same problem in Jesus's day. I mean, maybe the best example is what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000. He'd fed the 5,000, but the next day, everyone was looking for him, but they were missing the point because all that they wanted was more bread. They only wanted Jesus for what he could do for them, not for who he was in himself. And Jesus could see their motivation, and he said to them, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. What people really needed was Jesus, not the bread he could provide, but Jesus himself. Only Jesus could forgive their sins. Only Jesus could satisfy their souls. Only Jesus could bring them into a relationship with God. Only Jesus could give them eternal life. And he said, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever hung, be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. <laughs> Now, what Jesus was talking about was the true and living bread that came down from heaven, and he was talking about himself. He was specifically referring to the body he offered on the cross to save sinners, and his message was very simple. All you really need is me. I am that bread. I am the eternal source of life. I am the one who can satisfy the hunger in your soul. If you believe in me, you will live forever. There's, there's one final aspect of the bread of presence that I would like to share. In presenting the bread before the Lord every single Sabbath, and remember that the bread would remain before the Lord throughout the week. And as I said, this went on week after week, year after year, throughout the life of Israel. The 12 loaves of bread represented not just the 12 tribes of Israel, but represented the people themselves. The 12 loaves were a picture of the Israelites being offered up before the Lord. You will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation, God said to the Israelites. And so they were offered up to God. And even on top of those loaves was poured frankincense, a beautiful incense, poured on the bread to be offered as a sweet-smelling offering to the Lord. In this imagery, it's the people of God who are offered up. The bread presented every single Sabbath 
was put before the face of God, representing God's people. And what we see here is an amazing picture of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the final priest, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, who does not need for himself a sacrifice because he's not a sinner. He's our great high priest, and he offers, he offers us up to God, even as the priest offered the people in the symbol of the bread. But Christ offers not bread, but he offers us up to God. And the amazing thing is that he offers us up without blemish, without spot, before the face of God. He can do this because, it says in 1 Peter 3, that Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He presents us before God's presence blameless. And God looks upon you. He looks upon me. He really looks upon Christ. and He doesn't see your sins. He doesn't see your sin-stained garments. He doesn't see your unrighteous thoughts, your words, and your deeds. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, and the, the, the joy, the joy of that experience, the joy of belonging to Christ, the joy of having been taken from outside the camp, from the unholy nations, from the unclean people, and having been brought into the camp. Oh, and more than that, you realize that under the new covenant, the Lord has taken us into the tabernacle, beyond the veil, not just to the first veil in the holy place, but he has ripped apart the veil, separating the most holy place, and he brings us into the holy of holies. He brings us into the presence of God. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfaded and kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Lord, what a great privilege we have to gather and spend time in your word. Make our soul hungry to be filled with the true bread that came down from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. Increase our desire to fellowship with you in the closest of ways and help us to grasp the significance of being able to enter into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God without spot or blemish and deepen our understanding so that we may worship you all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
I'm desperate for you.
Lord, our, our desire for you, Lord, the pointers that you have given us in scripture, our dependence, Lord, upon your, your grace and your love and your providence in our lives, Lord. And Lord, how you, you gave us tangible examples and explanations and, and word pictures, Lord, of these elements or the table, the tabernacle itself, a, a, a heavenly, a earthly copy of what the true tabernacle is in heaven. And Lord, I, I can imagine this, this table of the bread of the presence there in heaven. And Lord, the, the bread itself to, to signify, Lord, your provision for us and your life and that your, your providence, Lord, to give us and provide all that we needed. Hallelujah. Lord, in your word, which is our life, you have the words of life, Lord. We thank you for the witness of the ages, through the ages, Lord, of scripture. And thank you, Lord, for the pointers to Christ that he came to fulfill, and he is the greatest tabernacle. And Lord, that he's chosen to Dwell within us by the power of his spirit. Hallelujah. Lord, make us mindful people <clears throat> of this precious gift and let us live in a way, Lord, to keep in step with you, to walk in with a manner worthy of the gospel. Lord, to not to resist sin and to flee from it. And Lord, to seek to to be pleasing to you, Lord, and to bring you joy. Thank you, God. Lord, may your presence be with us, your people, in new and fresh and, and sustaining ways this week. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Roger. Um, well, I think it's good to, to respond to a message <laughs> like this. Um, how might the church want to respond to what Roger shared here this morning? I was just talking to Brandon. Um, about what you said right here. I was saying how I really miss the community we have in church. And what really, when I heard your message today, it really made me think a lot deeper about me. Because you're explaining the gospel. And what I was saying was, you know, we always say the symbol of the bread and the cup of wine, the body of Christ, and the blood. The way I was thinking in my head, whether I'm right or wrong, is when you're taking the bread, if the bread represents the body and the blood, you're actually saying, you know, I want to be near you. And you're taking it into your body. And how much closer can you be than to be in your body? 
I can't hear you. Um, so it's like I was I was thinking, how cool is that? And how much I miss that communion that we all gather and we all partake together because of Jesus, the representation of that. I mean, it's just insane to think like that. And I thought, maybe I'm wrong. But it made sense in my head. So I thought, Thank you, Anastasia. Um, there, there is something about eating that that's as close as you can get in the physical sense, but even even in the spiritual sense, somehow God, it's it's that's right closer than that. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you. <clears throat> Anyone else? I don't know what to say except thank you, Roger. I appreciate it. Roger, I don't think I've ever heard a message just focused mainly on the showbread. And um, it was it was really good, really interesting. Um, I recently finished reading exodus and so it just really helped uh helped me put all the the symbolism and the um the character of the lord um and his intent to be near to us really really great thank you for, for um, putting the effort you did into this message yeah. roger yesterday i was i started a list um it's just, I mean, I think about nighttime and daytime, right? What's the spiritual significance of the night turning into the day? And you find scriptures that talk about, you know, the sun at noontime writing. And then you think about, well, what's the spiritual significance of springtime? You think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the resurrection. That's life. And then you start making a list of, of all these different things of what, how that's a pointer to Christ. And suddenly your mind gets flooded with well can i find anything that doesn't point to christ <laughs> you know and you think well that bread that yeah that points to christ and and you, you start out all the foods you, you eat and then all of your emotions and then you just kind of go down the list and suddenly everything in nature i mean the oceans and he talks about how deep your sins are away and east is from west and suddenly you realize we are living in a in a world full of signs and pointers that's right and one day we will be at the place that all the signs and all the pointers had referred to for our whole life and you know a sign that says beach 400 miles away <laughs> is not nearly it's it's encouraging to see and then you see it that says beach 200 miles away and you say beach four miles away and you just get more and more excited because you know what the beach is like, but the Bible is pointing to something mm -hmm. that's more glorious than the beach. It's more glorious than the mountains, Mary, believe it or not. It's more <laughs> glorious than the mountains. Um, that's and it's pretty pointing. glorious. 
and it's pointing and and god is doing all this pointing just to keep us it's his providence to give us hope every day he gives us hope um we just have to have eyes open to see it and that's what this this bread of the presence i mean he was pointing he was giving us evidence of, of what it's going to be like uh even to say, even to say that the tabernacle was an earthly copy sure this original what we thought was the original tabernacle first time ever made was simply a copy of what's in heaven um, I, I could go on and on I, i'm making my list checking it twice but uh i was thinking you, about that i think it was the first song we sang tonight or the, today and talked about um, jesus walking uh beneath the very stars that he created yeah and i was thinking about him looking up and going i named that one and i named that one and i named that one <laughs> and he went look that one's greg and that one's preston and that's bill and no i'm not going to name one richard and then I said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but also what penny was talking about earlier about uh you know so often i think early on especially we think that we have to do something to to meet the needs that god or something that god needs from us and god doesn't need anything from us except faithfulness you know you're one of the psalms and psalm 90 it says if i were hungry i would not tell you for the world is mine and all its fullness so there's absolutely nothing we can give God because he's the one that gives everything to us. So we just have to be faithful because that's, you know, he says, I don't, I'm not after sacrifice. You know, what good is that if your heart's far from me? So if we're not faithful, nothing else makes a difference. And coming to that realization sets you free, I think. The, the 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 thing that hit me so hard as I was going through this is this understanding of how Christ offers us up before God and God sees us as righteous. And, and let me tell you, I know that my life is marred by sin. I am weak. I'm constantly fighting my own flesh. I am tempted by the world. And yet it's an amazing thing to just know that Christ offers me up without spot or blemish before God. That's such a, that is such a joy in my heart to know that I mean, it it's, I don't have the words to express the joy that I feel just, just comprehending that. That's, that's what the great difficulty in every other religion is. How are you going to continue to, to think God is not going to all of a sudden get angry with you and say, that's it. I don't want anything else to do with you. Well, Christianity promises that God has made a covenant and he's never going to break it. Right. He's accepted you because you've accepted Jesus. And that's it. There's, there's nothing you can do to take it away. One of the things for me in, in the Old Testament, um, especially as I'm reading through Genesis now and, and BSF and all for the, I don't know how many times, but you always see things different new the first time 
and sometimes you get to places in the in the old testament and so many places in the bible and you go what's that got to do with anything you know that you you talk about um you talk about abraham and then abraham's son isaac and then jacob and then joseph and you see squabble after family <laughs> squabble over and over and over again sin and all of this stuff and you go why am i reading all this stuff about sinful people again and again and then you begin to realize what is god doing and showing me this and god made a covenant with abraham that he was going to bring a great people out and he was going to bring the messiah through abraham's seed and so he's showing you how even though all of these people are continually 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 falling short God will not let his covenant be broken. He's made a covenant that says the Messiah is going to come through this line. And then you start to think about, well, maybe that's one of the reasons that he sent Israel to Egypt for 400 years. Mm -hmm. Because when they were in Canaan, they consistently intermarried with the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were the worst kind of people you can imagine. They sacrificed their children and fire to idols. They did every kind of gross, heinous thing you can think of. And to be joined with the Canaanites meant you were going to be like them. And there's no way you can bring a, a promised Messiah through them. So move them to, to Egypt. You don't read about any of them ever intermarrying with the Egyptians, <laughs> with the exception of Joseph. And he has an Egyptian wife. But he's ruling over Egypt, so he's not entertaining any of their false gods because he's been faithful to God the whole time. So they're not in Canaan anymore, so they're not intermarrying with people that are going to break, the, cause them to break the covenant. So it's just one thing after another, and you go, oh, that's what's going on here. And it helps you to just say, all of this is important. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Sorry, didn't mean to get long-winded. Um, well, Lord, we just want to offer up a thanksgiving to you um, for, for your word, Lord, for your providence in our lives, Lord, that you have, or that by faith you have perfected us and offer us up as an offering to God the Father. And Lord, how, how you paid the price that that might be true, Lord. And we just, we just pray, Lord, that we continue to, to grow and knowing you and in serving you and uh, Lord, fulfilling the plan and purpose you have for each one of us. Lord, we thank you that um, we pray for one day that we can meet together again and ask Lord that you would end this virus and, and give us uh, fellowship again, again, Lord Jesus. Lord, we look to you and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Penny. Mary, what have you, Want to share this morning? Okay, tomorrow is Shang's birthday. So Hi. we want to celebrate his birthday. I don't know if he's around, Jan, but if he is, if he isn't, you tell him that we said happy birthday. And um, at the end, when someone prays, I'm going to ask them to pray for, for Shang. Um, I'll let him know. Okay, all right. And then. Um,
there are several other birthdays this week, but I will mention one for the Dennis family, and that is their grandbaby turns one on Saturday. Mm. And um, when Greg was speaking earlier about the stars being named for Greg, Bill, and Preston, but not Richard, I thought maybe not a star, but Richard, maybe a whole solar system. <laughs> so that's why no star, solar system. And, and, um, that's part of that interpretation. <laughs> part of part of that uh, includes Alba, right? Yeah. Um, this afternoon we have the shower at three o'clock. If you have not let us know, come anyway. We would love for you to come. We're going to have um, plenty of opportunity to fellowship and to share not just bread, but some additional things that Tia has prepared. And uh, we want to be a blessing to you, Rebecca, and Jonathan, and your baby. And so um, we look forward to being with you at 3 o'clock this afternoon. We have prayer meeting Wednesday night. And if y'all would also remember to pray for Crossway this upcoming weekend. We've had um, a number of obstacles in regard to this coming weekend. So I look forward to seeing what the Lord's going to do. I think those are the announcements, and again, we'll see you at 3 o'clock. Thank you, Mary. Well, I don't want to hope, hold you because we're going to have a gather again at uh, Mordecai Park. Mordecai Park. Okay. Not too far from where Pat and Greg live. And, and bring your own chair, is that right? Bring your own chair. All Everything right. else we'll have. Okay. And Mary, I didn't see anything about an RSVP, but I'm planning on coming. Perfect. We look forward to seeing you there, Wendy. I just received an email from Pat about a week or so ago. Was that the only thing, right? I think so. Yeah. Carla okay. just posted the address. All right. It didn't have an RSVP on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. But anyway. Mimosa, 3 p.m. I'm a coming. Good. Well, if, if someone could pl uh, pray for Sean, maybe Richard. All right, let's pray. How old is he? How old is Sean? Oh, yeah. I don't know. You're on. You're on mute, Sean. Or what up numbers? Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't worry. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Let's assume you can hear me. Father, we just thank you for every life that you bring forth into this world. Lord, we know that uh, everyone that's here, that you planned it, you foreknew it, you foreknew we would be born. And Lord, we just thank you for Sean and just bringing him into this world. Lord, we pray that you would continue to cause him to grow both physically and spiritually and mentally. Lord, we pray that... Uh, he would grow up into a young man who honors both his parents and you, Lord. Father, we pray that, uh, especially on, on his birthday, that he would celebrate that four times around the sun and uh, just enjoy the time together with his family, Father. We pray a special blessing on him on that day. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Richard. 
All right. Hope to see y'all guys later. Bye, everyone. See everyone Bye. later. Goodbye. Bye, Thanks, everyone. Roger. Thanks, Penny. Thank y'all. Let's see. Jill's coming to you. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye, Wendy.